Amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Great. Have you ever heard of the curse of ham? I'm not talking about the meat ham. Talking about the biblical figure Ham, it's a it's it's a really weird Bible story. As Nije talked about last week, there's a lot of weird Bible stories. This is one of them, so no big deal if you haven't heard of it. But I want to tell you about it. The curse of Ham it goes back to Genesis 9:20 through 27. So maybe you want to do your devotions there this week, but probably not. It's not a great it's a great story, and it's a weird story. Are you ready for it? It's a, it's an odd way to start a sermon, but here we go. Uh, so uh, Noah gets off the ark, and he has three sons, Ham and Shem and Japheth. So they roll out of the ark. Noah, uh, he, he plants a vineyard. He makes wine, which is one of the first things he does off the ark. And he drinks the wine, and he drinks a lot of it. It's been rough on the ark, I guess. And so he drinks too much, not good. He passes out. That's what happens when you drink too much. And he has no clothes on. How are we doing? That's a, <laughs> welcome to New Hope. So he's in his tent, drunk with no clothes on. Sorry, kids. This is in the Bible. And Ham walks by and sees his dad drunk and nude in the tent. Now, this is an honor culture. So the right thing to do would be to turn away, cover him, move on. Uh, Ham goes and gets his brothers, uh, Shem and Japheth, and like, look at nude, drunk dad. And his brothers, he, Ham's the youngest, his older brothers know what is right to do. They immediately turn around and, don't, and then they back into the tent and they kind of cover their dad and then they go back out, right? So that was the right way to do it in their culture. They behave properly. Noah wakes up, he, you know, he, he gets up in the morning, has a headache, all that kind of stuff, figures out what happens and he's super angry. Ham has dishonored him. So he curses uh, Ham's son Canaan and all the generations would follow. And the curse is something like your, your son Canaan and all his descendants will be, will be the lowest of slaves to your brothers. So it's called the curse of Ham. Weird story. Well, very sadly, uh, people through the years have taken that story and they've used it to, to do an incalculable amount of harm. Uh, they've used it for racism and subjugation of people of color, particularly black people. And uh, it's, not just, it's not just Jewish people have done this, uh, Christians have done it, Muslims have done it, Mormons have done it. So how this goes is they, somewhere along the way, somebody said that the word ham means black or dark. So that when God cursed Canaan in that lineage and ham, then those people, the black, dark people, will be forever positioned as slaves to people who aren't black and dark. We following? So it's called the curse of ham. It's super sad. And particularly in the 19th century early American church, some people, notably down south, use the curse of Ham as the primary justification from Scripture for racist activity and slavery and subjugation of people. Uh, here's one, just so we're, we're in this series, so I'm trying to give you, just being really honest with you in all these questions. So uh, here's one Christian leader from the 19th century. He says, from Ham were descended the nations that occupied the land of Canaan and those that now constitute the African or Negro race. Their inheritance, according to prophecy, has been and will continue to be slavery. And so long as we have the Bible, we expect to maintain it. That's Patrick Mell. He was the fourth president of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's, uh, it's horrifying 
to me <laughs> to hear people do that to Scripture. And anyone you hear today could read that, Genesis 9, 20 through 27. You don't have to have any biblical training, and you could quickly see how ridiculous this is. So I not only blame the people using it, but the people falling for it. We have to be better readers of the Bible, and if you didn't listen to Nijay's message last week, please go listen to it. Uh, we can see in a number of different ways this is massively misconstrued. First of all, God never cursed anyone. Noah, in his drunken nude state, was doing the cursing. So that's an important point. Secondly, he never cursed Ham. He cursed Canaan. So it's not the curse of Ham. Third, in the Hebrew, Ham does not mean black or dark. It's, re it's just ridiculous. Fourth, racism at that time, and for most of history, uh, maybe the past 200 years, this has started to matriculate, racism was never about skin color. So that would have just never even occurred to them that that would have been the, the, the curse in that context. And most importantly, if you remember two weeks ago, I argued, I think compellingly, that the story of Scripture is God uh, birthing a family, Abraham's family, that births a uh, nation, that births a king, that births a kingdom to make all things right. And in that kingdom is this incredible tapestry of people from every tribe, language, nation, people. Do you guys remember that message? So it's like antithetical to Scripture and the whole story of Scripture from beginning to end. A few things in life. I'm not like an angry guy, I don't think. Tell me, intervene if I get angry. I don't think I'm a naturally angry guy. A few things uh, make me angry. One, when people uh, use the passing lane and they drive slow. Anybody else, does that make you angry? It just drives me freaking nuts. I like lose my mind. I also get angry when the Blazers don't play good perimeter defense. Anybody else? The wide open guy in the corner, I'm like, that's your guy. I'm like shouting at the TV. Uh, bad coffee makes me really angry. When people eat their Oreo cookies and they open them and eat the frosting first, that makes me kind of angry. But all kidding aside, what makes me more angry than anything is when people use the beautiful and good and true word of God to subjugate other people and vulnerable people and misconstrue it to do evil in the world. Nothing gets me angrier than that. We're in a series uh, called 10 Questions. And uh, we're going at the hardest questions we can find that we think serve as barriers to the way of Jesus and Jesus himself. So we, uh, the first week we did, is the world better off without Christianity? Second, does, does the Christianity oppose diversity? Last week, Dr. Nijay, who will, he'll be beginning to speak more often here, he's a New Testament scholar, talked about can we take the Bible seriously? And this week, we're going to look at the fact, is, does the Bible support slavery? So buckle up. Here, here we go. We got all kind of other resources. So we have our big read. So that's the book you'll see. It's red when you go out. I'd love for everyone to read it, Confronting Christianity by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. We're pulling our questions largely from that. Uh, each week, we're doing a cutting room floor podcast. I don't know how many of you are listening to it. I'm told a good number of people are, which is awesome. I really encourage you to listen to it. Um, we, we, anything that's left on the cutting room floor, like for this message, I had 47 pages of notes when I started to write. So obviously, unless we're gonna be here for the next couple of hours, you'll, you won't get the majority of that, but you'll get a lot of that in the cutting room floor. Uh, Pastor Hakeem Bradley uh, joined me for the diversity question. He'll be back this week for this question. 
So we had a great chat. And and I, last week, I think the podcast was an hour and 20 minutes. We talked about the Bible and violence on and on and on. So he's a world-class scholar. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to me. If you have uh, questions, you can, you can uh, send them via email, questions at newhopepdx.org. We'll try to address them in the cutting room floor. And also for each of these topics, some of these questions probably aren't gonna be a big deal to you. Others are gonna be a huge deal to you wherever you're at on the spiritual journey. Each teacher provides additional resources. So you'll see those if you go on the website, articles, uh, YouTube videos, podcast interviews. If you wanna dig deeper, we're trying to give you the stuff to dig deeper. Uh, So today we're gonna look at the question, does the Bible support slavery? And for some of you, again, This may not be a big issue for you. Trust me, it's a big issue for a lot of other people. And we gotta address these things. We gotta bring light in the dark if we're gonna move forward in the way of Jesus. All right, so our uh, uh, Ron, our chairman of our elder board is gonna do our reading today. Let me pray as Ron comes forward. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would have your way with us this morning. It was so great to be with your people, to sing loudly and boisterously that you hold our future, Jesus. And when it gets dark and it gets discouraging and I have many of those days, I cling with fervent hope to that reality. And as your people, we're embodied today living into that reality. And as we go at this hard question, be tender with us, be gentle with us, allow us to be gentle with ourselves. And as your son said again and again and again and again, do we have ears to hear? Help us to hear this morning, Father, from you, from your word. We pray this in the matchless name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said. A reading from Philemon 8.18. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ron. We'll, we'll get to Philemon and Onesimus' story in just a second. As I say every week, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can bring your Bibles to church. I know that's a kind of a novel idea, but you can do that. If you have your phones, you have free Bibles right there. And if you need somebody that's tech savvy to help you, 
go ahead and, and get that fired up because in all these uh, questions will be deeply in scripture and we'll return to Philemon and it'll be helpful when we do to have that very short but powerful book in front of you. Uh, before we dig into this, we have to get context. We say a lot around here, the Bible uh, was not written to us, but it's written for us. To understand what it has for us, we have to understand the original context or we will get it wrong every single time. So I wanna step back and draw back and just look briefly at an overview of slavery in the Bible. So how, do, how does slavery come into the Bible? How do we see it? And then we're gonna go into this book of Philemon. Um, I, I, uh, kudos to my professor, Dr. Scott McKnight. He's written a remarkable, I think it's the newest commentary on Philemon, and uh, it's just rich with resources. It's in the resource list this week. If you're interested, I don't think it's that costly. But I pulled a lot of this stuff from him, and I'm, I'm grateful for his scholarship. First and foremost, slavery was absolutely ubiquitous in the first century. And that word just means it was so common, it was just accepted, it was the air that was breathed, and it was absolutely unchallenged. We don't have any evidence of anyone challenging slavery. It just was what it was. Numbers, uh, 30 to 35% of the Roman Empire were slaves. Um, every year, 250,000 slaves were sold in Rome. So you had two ma you had massive amounts of classes of people. Everything was about class in the first century Greco-Roman world. But you had two major roadways or pathways of class. You were either slave or free. And in each of those, there were segments and honor and some were higher than others and all that. That's just how the world worked. But you were either slave or free. Now, it's important to know slavery is different than chattel slavery in uh, the early parts of our country. Uh, slavery in the ancient world was not based at all on race. A lot of people chose to go into slavery to avoid po uh, poverty or to pay off debts, or they were captured in warfare and they were made to be slaves. Slaves could be highly, highly educated. We have slaves that were doctors and lawyers. Slaves owned other slaves. Uh, the reality and the life of slaves varied dramatically. If you were slaves in the, the house of a rich person or the emperor, your life was way different than if you were a slave of a farmer, as you can imagine. And the, how your master operated obviously changed your reality as well. Slaves could also work for their freedom and, and were granted their freedom. We have stories of slaves uh, working to be free becoming citizens of Rome and becoming powerful politicians. So I think this background is helpful. With all that said, slavery is slavery. And I don't wanna not say that. According to the Code of Roman Law, this is how they defined it. Slavery was someone being made subject to the ownership of another. So it, it, ancient world, early America, today, slavery is slavery. It's about one human owning another or empowering another or forcing another person to do something. Uh, slaves in the in first century Rome were legally non-existent persons. Uh, they, they couldn't pass on inheritance. They couldn't get married. Oftentimes, they never uh, got free. And if they did, oftentimes, they stayed tethered to their original masters. They couldn't make it in life without them. They would go into abject poverty and homelessness. Slave auctions were brutal affairs. Uh, neck manacles and shackles, and they were often mistreated and maimed. Uh, slaves were also often sexually abused. Um, some slaves chose to run, and that will be our story with, with Philemon today that we'll go into, uh, but they were tracked down 
And we have, we have archaeological evidence of like slave kind of posters, if you will, like this, watch for the slave running, got to catch it. And, and a lot of times the payment was, was death. If slaves revolted, um, it was almost instant death. We have a story in the Roman Empire of a slave revolt where the Romans came in and crucified 6,000 slaves for revolting. So um, that was just not allowed. All right, so uh, most, many families in the ancient world so if you encounter any family in scripture or you were just like, we time dropped into the first century, almost any family we encountered would have slaves as part of that family. Almost every institution and organization will infiltrate it with slavery. It was the foundation of the economic order in, in the first century. It really wasn't for them. They would have never seen it as a right, wrong thing. It was just an accepted, unchallenged part of life. So I say it like this. The Bible assumes slavery but never affirms it. And so let's look at the affirmation, the Bible, or, or let's look at the assumption. The Bible assumes that it is being written and lived out in a time period where slavery existed. So one example is Exodus 21. You can turn to that and, and look at that later or look at that right now. It comes right after the Ten Commandments, and it provides laws for Israel to follow. Uh, Exodus 21.2 says, if you buy a Hebrew slave or servant, so it's assuming and this is a Jewish person buying another Jewish person. Note that. Later in verse 7, it reads, if a man sells his daughter to our modern ears, we're like, what? Why would you? Do? Well, a lot of times that was the best thing for the daughter because they would have gone into prostitution or poverty. But there might have been a pathway for this father to sell his daughter and love her well, to, to be in a family and to serve, maybe work to her freedom. It depends on the situation. Uh, the Bible assumes continually the brutal reality of slavery in the New Testament. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, and this was a circular letter, meaning was passed on in Asia Minor. It says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So the Bible assumes slavery. Doesn't mean that affirms it. So the Bible never affirms slavery. In fact, it suggests it's wrong. Back to Exodus 21, 16. It says that anyone who forcibly enslaves someone else is to be put to death. In Paul's letter to 1 Timothy, it says slave traders are unrighteous, ungodly, and sinful, and it puts them in the same category as those who kill their mothers and fathers. So at no point does the Bible say slavery is great, do it, never. But the Bible does assume, as the story is being written and played out, that slavery is a part of that world. Uh, the Bible never directly demands the end to slavery. And that is a key issue for people. Why in the world would the Bible not just say, this is horrible and don't know? Well, some of it were building this case. It was so ubiquitous, it was unchallenged. Uh, the Bible is written in a story to a people, a broken, sinful people, and God knows that, and he's choosing to work out that story through broken people who do broken things. Additionally, to come in in the first century and just expect that Paul and the writers would just say, abolition of slavery, set them all free, could very much have been worse for the slave. Again, this, we don't understand this. It's not how our world works today, but we know historically that would have been true. They would have gone into poverty. Uh, they would have been killed. They would have been re-enslaved by somewhere else. We have stories, or one particular story I came across, where one slave rebelled or ran away, and the master in the room, with the back in the Roman government, came in and killed all 400 of the other slaves. So this is like, we, we, in our modern eyes, I call it chronological snobbery. 
If we look back with our own moral compass today and we judge the people that lived so long ago that was in a different world. Uh, so that might have not been the right thing to do. Uh, the Bible never affirms it, but it does assume it. And it never says, set everyone free, but there's reasons for that. Additionally, if Paul would have attached abolition of slavery to the early Christian movement, the Christian movement would have been annihilated and just gone. So there's reasons. None of them excuse the things that you might be feeling in your heart, but I ask you to understand what you're feeling in the context of how you live now as you look back to a time long, long ago. With that said, the Bible continually, I would say, redemptively addresses slavery. And what I mean by that is every time we see the Bible addressing and assuming slavery and giving any kind of commands around that, it's pushing it towards redemption. It's pushing it far beyond how slaves were treated in that same specific time period. I will argue towards the ultimate redemption of all slavery. So here's some examples of that. This is from the Old Testament. They'll come up on the screen. Uh, this, this is Old Testament law. It says slave catching was a capital offense. We already looked at that verse. Slaves were given a day of rest. They were given Sabbath. The slaves were released if they were harmed in any way. Killing a slave merited punishment. Any Hebrew slave was to be freed after six years. God's people had to provide a refuge for escaped slaves, and a woman captured in war were protected and provided for. All of those things were virtually unheard of. That would have just seemed like utter foolishness at the time they were written. Women were immediately enslaved sexually if they were captured, on and on and on. It would have seemed absurd. To us, you're like, well, yeah. All those things and more, John. Why does the Bible say more? We have to understand when it was written and what the story of God is doing in the time and place to a specific people, moving it along redemptively towards the ultimate redemption of all things. And I think with, those, with the background of that, we have to remember that God's people were enslaved for 400 years. They knew what it was like to be slaves. And God didn't like that. God came in and said to set them free. And so as they dealt with people who were slaves, absolutely that affected how they, they, they dealt with them. But please, I plead with you not to take our modern moral compass and read it back with chronological snobbery to a different time. Do you think in 100 years, people might judge us for a few things, right? We see what we see. So let's be gentle and gracious as we go at this question. The Bible's redemptive treatment of slavery is not an endorsement of slavery. God never created slavery. He never commanded people to own slavery. God provided redemptive regulations to an existing condition created by sinful and broken humanity. It's undeniable the Bible brought positive changes to ancient slavery. Uh, so one story bears us out. It's, it's one of my favorites. Another weird story. You okay with another Old Testament weird story? So uh, the weird story is this. It's Hagar. And Abraham is the father of promise. That's the person that God called out be it from being a herder to birth this nation, to birth this kingdom, to birth this, the people that would make all things right. So uh, he tells Abraham and Sarah that you're going to have uh, a family, more stars in the sky. Well, the problem was they're old and they have no kids, and Sarah's barren. I think if you're familiar with scripture, you probably know the story. Well, they get impatient with God. Have you ever gotten impatient with God? Anyone can relate to that? And they do an end around. It was actually Sarah's idea saying, I have this younger slave, Hagar. Why don't you sleep with her? Let's get this thing going, right? If we're going to be, if we're going to, you know, I'm old. Like, I'm, you're not going to get anything out of me anymore. 
let's do this. And that was an accepted practice then. And for Hagar, she had no choice, let's be clear on that, but it could have also meant a pathway to a better life for her. Regardless of whether she wanted to or didn't want to, it happened. And Hagar becomes pregnant, and God comes in. She's a slave and tells her that he is going to bless her and, and bless her son. Sarah now sees that Hagar is pregnant and gets really angry and starts to mistreat her slave. Hagar runs. So Hagar is a pregnant, uh, single, runaway slave. You got the picture? And an angel of the Lord appears to her and blesses her and encourages her. And then she says these words. Okay, this is Hagar speaking of our God. She says, uh, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I think that's a deeply impactful story. One, if you're a woman in the room, and we'll get to that question later in the series, but to this idea of slavery. As God's playing out the story, God is the one who sees. God is the one who sees. And all along the story, God has walked with the most vulnerable and he sees building a kingdom that will make all things right. All right, you guys ready for Philemon? Ready to turn back to Philemon? One of the shortest books in the Bible, if you're, if you're a Bible nerd and you wanna do Bible trivia, first and second John are the only books shorter. Philemon is 335 words in the Greek. So read it this week. That's one of my challenges to you. Read it and reflect on it. It's one of my favorite books. And you can do it for your devotions and come out and be like, yeah, I did, I did a book of the Bible for my devotions this morning. Just like cruised right through that thing. All right. So Philemon, uh, know that 20% of the Gentile churches consisted of slaves. So this scene that we're going to set up in Philemon was a common scene. Now we have a letter, and this is some of the problems with interpreting scripture. We have a letter from uh, Paul to Philemon. Uh, we, know, we don't know the story. We don't know where he wrote it. We don't know when he wrote it. So we got one-way communication, and we're trying to stand back and do good like Sherlock Holmes detective work and figure out what's going on. And scholars have spent you know, an ad nauseum amount of time trying to do it. And I think that I'm going to put forth what I think is a reasonable story for this letter, and then we're going to talk about the letter. So I think that Paul wrote this. Uh, it says while he was in prison, so probably during his imprisonment in Ephesus, from 53 to 55 AD. He wrote it during that time. Uh, he uh, wrote it to Philemon, who was a church leader, so he was probably a wealthy man who had come to Christ and had a house church, and probably in Colossae is what we think. And that's because we think Onesimus, the other character in the story, who was a slave of Philemon, was from Colossae. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, Onesimus is mentioned again as the letter carrier for Colossians. That's why we have that connection with Colossae. Now, Paul never went to Colossae. We think his uh, disciple Epaphras, who is mentioned in Philemon, planted that church after Paul mentored him. Are we following? Is it confusing yet? Okay, so we got Colossae, we got the house church. There would be several house churches. Paul's never been there, but he has his imprint on him. They know who Paul is. He's the apostle. He has tons of authority. He's in prison in Rome in the early 50s. Now, Onesimus uh, is a slave in Philemon's house, typical family probably, multiple slaves. Something happens, we don't know what, Onesimus runs. And he eventually makes it to Ephesus, which is 100 miles away. Most people, especially slaves, would have never traveled that far in their lifetime. It's a long, long way. 
Somehow he gets, he wants to get out of the area because he's being, he's being looked for. 100 miles away. We don't know if he knows about Jesus prior to running. We don't know any of that. I don't think he did. And so somewhere along the way, maybe in Ephesus, maybe at the house churches in Ephesus, Onesimus becomes a follower of Jesus, which is incredible. And many, many slaves became followers of Jesus in the first century. This is not uncommon. Somehow, Onesimus gets a sitting with the Apostle Paul. And maybe it's the Colossae connection. I don't know. We don't know how any of this worked. It was risky for the runaway slave to be visiting a prison. Picture that. But he would regularly visit with Paul, got to know him. And we know there was deep love and intimacy because Paul talks that way in the letter. It wasn't just like a one-time visit with Paul. They begin a mentorship relationship, a father-son relationship. We don't know how long this lasted. Probably a considerable amount of time. At some point in the journey, Paul brought up as any good mentor, you got to make things right. You got to make things right. What you did was wrong, and you got to make things right. So that was probably a tough conversation. You need to go back to Colossae. He's like, you know, is there a plan B, Paul? I don't know that I want to do that plan A. But he's a faithful follower of King Jesus. Now he says, yes, I will do that. So Paul writes this letter to Philemon, has never met Philemon, but Philemon knows who he is. And I think also wrote the letter to the Colossian churches, gave Onesimus both letters, and said, I want you to deliver these messages. Are we following? So runaway slave with two letters from the Bible makes his way 100 miles back all the way there. And, you know, could you picture the scene after all this time? Onesimus comes up to the door, probably just perspiring and sweating and not a loud knock, but, you know, eventually he's knocking. Philemon comes to the door, and I imagine him being red in the face and angry. Onesimus has not only escaped, but he's stolen from him. So Philemon literally had his life in his hands. He could have taken his life right then by all legal codes. And here's, and, you know, I don't know if you know, Philemon draws back to punch him or what's happening in his mind and heart, but quickly I picture Onesimus holding up the two letters from Paul. These are from Paul, you know. And if you're a letter carrier, this was common, you are supposed to also publicly read the letter to the churches. So we follow the scene. This is an incredible story. So Philemon maybe, I think, really angrily gathers all the churches together. Now the story's on full display. And Philemon gets up in front of everybody, and they all know his story. He's a runaway thief slave who's come to Jesus. The gospel is really being pressed right now. And he gets up and he reads the letter. And you heard the body of it earlier uh, from Ron. So essentially in the letter, uh, Philemon, uh, it, Paul starts and he, he gives a greeting and thanksgiving and prayer. And then he launches in. He explains this situation to everyone and to Philemon, who Onesimus has become. And then he leaves the ball in Philemon's court as to what to do, which I think is brilliant for many reasons. And then he says, if he owes you anything, and of course he owes him something, I will pay it back in full. And that's a canny move, because who's going to ask Paul to pay anything back when he's an apostle? And then he tells Philemon, I wrote this with my own hand. Paul had a lot of people write letters for him. Paul's like, I wrote this one myself. And then he says, Philemon, thanks for listening. I'm confident you're going to do more than I ask. Talk about passive aggressive. And he says, prepare a guest room for me, because I'm going to come visit and see what you decided to do. Greetings in the name of the Lord. <laughs> and he also tells him Epaphras is with him in prison. Epaphras is the one who launched the churches in Colossae and probably mentored Philemon. 
He's like, Epaphras is here watching as well. <laughs> Good luck. I love this letter. Onesimus is a runaway slave and a thief, but in Jesus, Paul now refers to him like this. And if you're looking down at the text, go back and read this. He calls Onesimus my son, my brother, my very heart, and someone I'd like to keep with me. And most, most uh, beautifully, no longer a slave and better than a slave. Could you imagine Onesimus reading this letter? His voice quivering, his body shaking, tears coming to his eyes. No one's ever talked to him like that or said these beautiful things. You're no longer a slave. You're better than a slave. You're my son. What was happening in that room? What did Paul hope to accomplish? See, our modern moral sensibilities, our chronological snobbery, want Paul to say, uh, you know, slavery's wrong, set him free. That's what we want, and we don't get that. And I don't have time to go into why I think Paul did this and this and that. But here's what I'll argue today. Uh, I think that Paul is doing the harder thing. I think he's doing the harder thing. I think the easier thing would have been like, just set him free. Well, he probably would have gone on to impoverishment, uh, homelessness. Their relationship would have not been together. It would have been apart. It would have brought chaos to the church. I think he's doing the harder thing. He, he's coming in and he's looking for redemptive uh, redemption and revolution in a relationship that is so broken between a slaveholder and a slave. I mean, we can't even fathom it. We got the master and the slave. You know, Philemon is the master and, and, uh, and Onesimus is the slave. Philemon is powerful and Onesimus is powerless. Philemon is a person, according to Rome. Philemon's a nobody. And Paul is coming in and he's inserting the gospel in the heart of their relationship and is reminding them the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that the church that God is intending to build is going to weave together slaves and slaveholders and pretty much anyone else you can fill in there to make the most diverse and beautiful tapestry on the face of the earth. He tells Philemon to welcome Onesimus home, not as a runaway thieving slave, but as a dear brother in the Lord. Are you kidding me? And, and that he continued to do this. I don't think, that, I don't think this, this just affected this relationship. I think this was a stone dropped into the pond of the ancient world that has ripple effects all the way up to this present moment. I think that's what's going on. And we see that in some of Paul's other writings. The letter that, that, that I think Onesimus also had that he would have also read says this, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Later in Ephesians, he says that Jesus tears down every dividing wall, even the ones between slaveholders and slaves. I think Paul is planting seeds of transformation into the ancient soil where slavery was ubiquitous. And those seeds of transformation came to bear monstrous fruit. Already in the second century, we, have, uh, we, have, we don't know who this is, but it's possible that it's the same Onesimus. We have an Onesimus that became bishop of the church of Ephesus after Timothy. Maybe, maybe. Isn't that a cool thought? We have letters that talk about female slaves that became deacons in the church. Are you kidding me? I think the gospel is like a Trojan horse. You know that analogy? I think Paul rolled this Trojan horse right into the middle of first century Rome and they said, ah, oh, it's a horse, you know, it's a wooden horse. They had no idea what was coming. They had no idea what was inside 
and neither do we, I think. I say it like this. I think the gospel dismantles slavery from the inside out. I think the easier route would have tried to go from the outside in. Paul knew it had to start in the human heart, and it still does. And that's what the gospel affects. All right, a couple of reflections. How are we doing? The Bible and slavery. Woo! Didn't expect this at church, right? A couple of reflections. All right. Um, first, we should lament the church's support of slavery. We should lament it. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, a man named Basil Manley Sr., and I'm not going to go into his story because it's kind of disgusting. But he was the chaplain of the Confederacy. He was at the inauguration of Jefferson Davis. He launched a bunch of colleges. He was probably the most respected educator and theologian in the early, uh, in, in that time period in, in the southern part of the United States. He owned 40 slaves. He said that slaves should be happy to have Christian owners because Christian owners were kinder to them. Uh, that we should begin to enslave people at a very young age so they would never know freedom because that was troublesome. So we should enslave children. He said that selling a horse was no different than selling a slave. It's disgusting. This was one of the leading theologians. You might say, John, he was just a bad egg. He was not just a bad egg. There was lots of bad eggs. And we have to grapple with that. And we have to face it. And we have to lament it. Why are we running from that? If you want to read more on this, Dr. Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, is a really difficult read. But I think every follower of Jesus should read it. If you doubt that it was more than just one bag of egg, read this historian's book and grapple with it. We have to. We have to lament we know church leaders were also members of the KKK. That was not uncommon. We have stories of white churches worshiping like we're doing this morning, leaving and walking across the courtyard to watch a lynching as they had a picnic. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta lament that. We have to. We're part of the same stream. We're all one church. We have to, we have to lament that. Uh, slavery has been called America's great contradiction. I like that. I think that's true. A nation that was founded on equality for all because we're endowed by our creator with inalienable rights, subjugated to people of a certain race and color. It's, it's our historical contradiction. Another person's called it our original sin. I think those same two things could be applied to the church. It's our, original it's our historical contradiction and our original sin as the American church. We have to grapple with it. And I don't know what's going on in your heart right now, but I've had lots of these conversations over the last couple years with many good people. And one of, the, one of the reactions I get is defensiveness. And here's what I get from people. Well, I'm not a racist. And I'm like, well, that's great. I'm glad. I'm really glad you're not a racist. And what they're saying is, you know, this isn't on me. This is people in the past. And I would say this. The Bible has individual sin, which is really important. And Jesus takes care of that. But the Bible talks a ton about collective sin and generational sin that is passed on from generation to generation. So you really think the American church's complicity with slavery, and there was complicity, not that long ago doesn't have ramifications for our present church. Of course it does. Uh, Isabel Wilkinson's a historian that wrote this fabulous book, Cast, and she has this great analogy of a house, and she says when you move into a used house, uh, somebody designed that house a certain way and made some fixes to the house and wallpaper and paint, and they made decisions. They made decisions to fix some things and not fix other things. It doesn't matter once you own it, it's your house. It's your house. And what kind of foolish people would stand back and watch you know, a pipe dripping and be like, that's not my problem. It's your house, it's our house. This is our house. So if that's going on in you, I wanna call you as your pastor to explore what that is. And I wanna call you into, I'm not saying that you gotta say that you would have done that, I don't who knows, right? But for the grace of God, go we. I don't know how we would respond to those times. I hope differently. 
But we need to lament. We need to learn. We need to grieve. And people need to see that brokenness in our hearts as we move forward as God's people in God's name to make all things right. Amen? So I want to I wanna have a moment here where I just give a space uh, to do that. And I'm not going to direct. It's you and the Holy Spirit. You do whatever work you got to do. Uh, I have written a prayer that maybe that's a catalyst for you. Maybe you want to pray it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want this space. Uh, so I'm going to give us uh, a, like a minute of silence and quiet. And then this prayer will come up and, and I'll pray it over us. Um, one of the things that we could pray over is this horrific hate crime in Buffalo, if you've seen that. I mean, to think that, oh, we're done with this stuff. We're not done with this stuff. And, and also the beautiful scene, I was reading the article this morning, of a black church that showed up on the scene. If you haven't read the story, it was a hate crime against black people, and 10 people were killed. A black church shows up on the scene in the parking lot and is praying over the scene. That's the kind of church we need to be, right? It's horrible, it's evil, and we need to pray, and we need to fight, and we need to link up with the Holy Spirit to make things right. So this is just space for you to grapple with emotions that may be going on, things that you're already angry that I said and you're going to email about me later, all, all that stuff. You know, do it. But let's pray. Let's give space for the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts. All right, let's pray. God, our hearts are broken as we acknowledge how your church participated directly and indirectly with the enslavement of our black brothers and sisters. We lament the evil of racism. We grieve with you and those who were affected. Have mercy on us. Our hearts also break when your church is silent and inactive in response to the racism that still exists. We lament the evil of racism we grieve with you and those who are affected. Have mercy on us. May your spirit awaken your church to be the body of Jesus in our broken world and heal racial divides. Help us to see people as you see people. Bring life to our dry bones. Empower us to make the world right again for your name's sake. And all God's people said, I want, to change, I want to end with an encouragement and a challenge. The uh, encouragement is this. Jesus in the gospel is at the heart of every abolitionist movement. Be encouraged by that. Jesus is at the heart of every abolitionist movement. We can go through the early church fathers and uh, two brothers, Gregory and Basil of Caesarea and Augustine and John Christendom, and by 7th century, slavery was virtually eliminated from the Roman Empire because of Jesus' followers. And then it crept back in, as evil does, and it came back to, to, to pray, uh, do horrible, horrible things to generations upon generations of people. And then once again, William Wilberforce and Charles Spurgeon and John Wesley and Charles Finney and Harriet Beecher Stowe and Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. I could go on and on and on. I challenge you to find an abolitionist movement, an abolitionist that wasn't driven by the gospel to make things right. 
So that is truth as well, and be encouraged in that in our present day. One of my favorite stories of this whole sword affair is our black brothers and sisters as they were enslaved. White Christians would, would take them to church with them, and they'd sit there or in the back, because they weren't allowed to sit in the pews, and they'd hear the gospel. And their white enslaving Christians were not hearing the gospel, but the slaves heard the gospel. They heard of this king that sets people free. They heard of, the, of, of, of this letter from Philemon to Onesimus. And their hearts became inflamed with hope. And they launched an underground church movement that became known as the Invisible Church. They brought some of the greatest songs that we know, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, on and on and on. And that has cascaded forward to our present day where 75% of black people say that faith is vital to their lives versus 49% of white people. 47% of black people attend church every single week versus 34% of white people. The gospel, so powerful, so powerful. If we let it have its way with us. And here's the challenge. We're not done with slavery. <laughs> I wish we were. Uh, 40 million slaves in the world today. 40 million. One out of four of them is a kid. One out of four of them, it's sexual. There's 60,000 slaves in America today. In this city, followers of Jesus, what are we going to do about it? Sex trafficking has now surpassed drug trafficking in, in revenue. $150 billion worldwide. What are we going to do about it? We've got to do something. We've got to fight. We've got to pray. We're followers of King Jesus who sets people free. Amen? So if you're looking to get involved, my wife and I, we support an organization called International Justice Mission. And they're so incredible, so courageous. And I encourage you to, to go on their website and see how you can support their efforts all over the world to set slaves free. And Denise uh, leads our justice ministers here, and, and we have local uh, groups on the ground, organizations on the ground that we partner with. If you want to get involved locally with slavery in our community, it is here and it's robust in Portland. Reach out to Denise. Uh, go, go out and talk to Dina. She can link you up on how to get involved. Uh, let me pray over that as we go to the table this morning. Father, our hearts break. Your heart breaks. We're so sorry, God. We haven't done more. And we want to. We want to, God. Be with those men and women who are enslaved. Those kids. I can't even imagine. And help us, Father, to be your body. Your body. Help us to be animated by your spirit for the sake of the world. When we hear about these things, help our response be like, I'm not a racist. Help it to be like, oh my gosh. What in the world? I grieve that. I want better. Come, Lord Jesus. Make this a church that cares about this. Make this a church that's making a difference in the world for anyone and everyone, but especially our brothers and sisters of color. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said. Uh, John 8, 36 says, uh, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Love that. And I, I hope nobody's enslaved in the room today. It's, it's possible somebody is. And if you are, please come talk to us. But there's a lot of enslavement in the human hearts. And it, it, could be, it could be entertainment. It could be wealth. It could be a relationship. It could be drugs or alcohol or porn or ego or gossip. 
Man, our hearts are so easily enslaved, and only Jesus can set us free. Amen? Only Jesus can set us free. We won't be a church that is centered on King Jesus having his way with us and freeing us to be the people that he created us to be. Uh, that is the, as Nijay said last week, I love that he said the table offers um, an, an invitation and kind of a challenge. And the invitation is, if we come to Jesus, he'll set us free. If you've never done that, look to Jesus. He's the only one. He's your only shot to set you free. But then the challenge is we go forth from the table to be the body of Christ, to set a world free for his namesake. The scriptures tell us on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a sign of the new covenant, which is given in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may take the elements. And uh, I know I need to worship. So if you're willing and able, stand with us and let's worship our King.